I'm Uni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unhealthy Two Jews on the News from Keshet Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, your need. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. You know, we're going to, we have a very, very uh, interesting show today. And we're going to talk Ukraine and Israel and Russia and our special guest, Scott Galloway, this fascinating interview. But before all this is coming up, there, uh, we have some breaking news from the Unholy Desk. Uh, we we do. I mean, look, it's slightly dwarfed by world events. But uh, yes, it is quite true that this week I succumbed to the dreaded virus. I got the, you can hear, Aww. can't you? Listen, listen to our sound. And, and we did jinx it so badly, the pair of us, because after nearly two years, we both said, isn't it amazing? Neither of us have got COVID. And then first you, and now me, uh, with the positive test a few days ago. So, yeah, I am under uh, that. But, yeah, I mean, if ever you wanted a bit of perspective, this really is nothing, considering <laughs> everything that's going on. And two years ago, it would have been a big deal. But right now, it's very manageable. So first of all, being the total gentleman that you are, you let me have it first. <laughs> yes, um, ladies first. But, that's right. Exactly. But I'm just, I mean, you sound okay. You're like, you're sitting at your, your, listeners can hear you, but I see you and you're sitting at your desk and you look fine and you're, you're okay, right? I mean, I don't need my, Jewish heart doesn't need to be completely worried and get on a plane and fly to London now, right? No, you and don't need that to do that. You don't vitamins. even need to FedEx chicken soup. Uh, we are okay. We're all, everyone in the house has got it. It's plague house here um i'm afraid so but we're we're all managing and i think you said this uh, when you got it which is it just makes you incredibly grateful for the vaccines and all the work that was done on that and it's true it's uh because this would have been sort of genuinely it would have been a very serious business nearly two years ago and as it is right now it feels like um a bad cold a bit fluey um but but you know nothing more than that and like i say and i sort of was half joking it does give you, you know, proper perspective. There are people who are facing things much, much worse than this right now, as we're going to go on to talk about. So really, you know, it is not um, holding the front page material, this one. It's 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 trivial. That's good. That's good. We're happy to hear that on the Tel Aviv end of, uh, of Unholy, and we hope you uh, feel uh, better. We should talk about uh, what is happening in the rest of the world while you're, uh, you're having this, uh, this bit of a cold, as you call it. Yeah, I mean, it's when we spoke a week ago, I think we probably would have predicted, uh, we would have feared that by now, by the time we're talking, Kiev would have fallen and that Russian, I don't know if Russian flags would have been flying, but Russian tanks and troops would have been holding the key in buildings of that city and that the President Vladimir Zelensky, what, may have been chased out, may even no longer be with us. And instead, the situation in terms of those bald facts is more or less the same now as it was a week ago, and the Russians are being sort of held off. And that itself is uh, astonishing, and perhaps, you know, was something we'll talk about in a bit more detail. But the, there, are, there are some sort of, uh, you know, and one always hesitates to, to find, as it were, the local angle. But the, 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 the areas that particularly interest us have come to the fore this week in quite an interesting way. And by that, I mean the Israeli element, the Jewish element. Um I'm going to say something in a second about the Jewish thing, but I, just the 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 Israel's position of really, in a way, neutrality was something you were talking about on this podcast weeks ago and explaining to people. And it's odd because it was a quite a niche topic, and then one way or another, it's got it's just gained in prominence and become actually quite important this week. 
Yes, so we have been talking about this, as you say. We've been talking about this uh, a lot in previous episodes. It is, I think, quite clear where Israel's sympathies lie. But at the same time, we are walking this very delicate uh, uh, balancing act. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that Israel is acting like there's a bear in its backyard for the very good reason that there is a bear in its backyard. Um, but, But as time goes by, it's becoming increasingly... You know, people are looking at this and not only uh, outside Israel, but also inside Israel. So Israel did not join the co-sponsors of the resolution in the Security Council, but it did vote with the U.S. as the General Assembly. You see Bennett not saying the word Russia and Foreign Minister Lapid saying the word Russia. It's carefully coordinated. So not only is our strategic alliance with the United States the most important thing for Israel, again, even though Syria is, uh, Russia is uh, here in Syria, but also the moral question, right? We can't be Israelis asking the world to take a moral stance and not take one when a country is being invaded without a provocation. And we heard that, uh, I brought you the quote of the American official last week saying Israel can't be Switzerland, right? That's pretty clear on what the United States is expecting. Again, the more this will be a prolonged uh, process. And what's interesting is President Volodymyr Zelensky is, I mean, I was about to say surely, but he just is the most admired leader in the world at the moment and de facto moral leader of the free world. He is making this point deliberately and very pointedly, uh, focusedly, issuing on uh, Wednesday an appeal to Jewish people across the world to speak out about the Russian invasion of his country and calling on Jews and on Israel to do the right thing. And I think he's, this is what I mean about how it's gained in prominence. This isn't only of interest to us. I mean, mm-hmm. he thinks it's important enough. And I think this this moral dimension is just a very fascinating thing. It's where Jews in some ways are situated in the global imagination. I, I will take that a bit further and say that what you're seeing, again, as the world is stepping up, because we have to admit that the world itself kind of, the Western world fumbled this at the beginning, right? At the beginning, it was more like uh, if Putin continues this, we're going to, you know, stop his Netflix um, subscription <laughs> or not let him into Disney World or, or something like that. And, and the world is stepping up. So as the world is stepping up, Israel, whatever its response is, looks in comparison to that, right? So on one hand, we're not sending what you're sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine, but Israel is being very careful in not sending any uh, weapons to Ukraine, even though the uh, um, Ukrainian ambassador in this country requested those weapons. Um, So there are all kinds of things. Again, it's not only words. It's what Israel is doing. Israel accepted 6,000 Ukrainian refugees and sent back 50 Ukrainian refugees. The way I say sent back, I mean to Europe, not to Ukraine, which had the uh, uh, Ukrainian ambassador in this country saying something like, we saved, we Ukrainians saved Jews during the Holocaust. Now it's your turn to save us. Um, we should pause on that for a minute. I agree completely that we should let any Ukrainian enter this country, uh, but we should just pause on the word save uh, in that context, I think, for a moment. Um, but, you know, this, so this is, of course, it's laden with meaning and with, with historic responsibility and with a lot of things. I think Israel needs to step up a little bit, and I'm saying this as an Israeli. Yeah, interesting, this idea of responsibility. I mean, and and yes, I noticed your pause on the idea of the claim that Ukrainians save Jews. Obviously, some did, but a lot lot did not. And a lot were, there were a large number of Ukrainian collaborators with Mm -hmm. the Nazis and with the Holocaust. And uh, this is, I think it goes to something interesting. And I've, I've, I've mentioned this to a few people, and it seems to have 
you know, they've nodded and said it's true, even though they're not necessarily keen to talk about it that publicly. I think Jews, particularly older ones, are a little uneasy about all this because on the one hand, of course, Ukraine's struggle is now the the, the, the this uh, admired struggle around the world for freedom and liberty. Absolutely. But the, the Jewish association with Ukraine was not wholly positive. Um, yes, Jews lived there for centuries and centuries, but they, it was a place of great brutality and the Ukrainian people did not entirely distinguish itself in its handling of their Jewish neighbours in the Nazi period. And, and uh, that's what an I understatement. Detect, yes, I'm being very polite here. What I notice, among, much old, among older Jews, there is a reflex which thinks, hang on, Russia was the side that liberated us. The Red Army liberated Auschwitz. And Ukraine, like, let's face it, almost all the other occupied nations of Europe were not great when it came to the murder of the Jews in the Holocaust period. And I noticed some people have to do something almost consciously unthink that. They have to consciously say to themselves, it's not the 1940s, it's a different period. I saw something very similar, incidentally, in the 1990s, in the Balkans period, where mm -hmm. there was a muscle memory of that said, "Oh, hang on, the Serbs—they were—they were the good guys. They were partisans. They were," you know, and then had to unthink that and think, "Well, now maybe that was true then, but now Serbs are on the wrong side morally." And ultimately, came came to a head with Srebrenica. Uh, and, and you know, it's a similar thing with Germany, where Germany is now the most liberal country in Europe. Again, old Jews with the memories of the Shoah have to unthink the the first impulse. So Ukraine, the idea of waving the flag of Ukraine, there's a little bit of vestigial memory that says mm, Ukraine. Not so sure. <laughs> Uh, that is obviously offset by the fact their leader is a modern-day right. Maccabee uh, and a total hero. So it's, you know, all of that changes. History is yeah. fluid. Um, our, a previous guest on this uh, podcast, Yuval Noah Harari, has been really interesting about this this week, saying there's nothing kind of essential about countries. There was nothing peculiarly German about the Holocaust, uh, etc. Each generation reinvents this stuff for themselves. Now, we have somebody uh, who is so smart to talk about all of this stuff with uh, a, a special guest for Unholy. And I'm going to leave it to you, Yoni, to tell our listeners who he is and to introduce him. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU, a serial entrepreneur and author, one of the most interesting, original uh, voices com commenting on business, tech, global politics, among other things, host of two of our favorite podcasts, right, Jonathan? Prof G and Pivot with Kara Swisher was already on our uh, podcast. So we just had to bring you on. Scott, hmm. uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. We're having a Florida-Israel-UK uh, meeting. You nice. know, I, I have to kind of open up by talking about something that is, I think it is Ukraine, but it's, I think it's actually completely in your comfort zone because it kind okay. of encapsulates business, big tech, and uh, and global politics. Because mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to zoom out and say, and see that we have, I think, on the one hand, weakening democracies around the world. On the other hand, like big, powerful uh, tech platforms that are being manipulated by uh, people, by autocratic regimes who spread information now basically can just invade a country because they want to. Mm -hmm. I know this is an incredibly open question, but as a representative of a democratic country here, where did we fail? Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to need a bigger boat. I think it starts, <laughs> I think it starts with at least in America, with a kind of a lack of trust or um, lack of respect or investment in our institutions. I think since Reagan in the 80s, 
Reagan had this saying that the seven most dangerous words were, uh, hello, I'm from the government and here to help. And here to help. And we started thinking of our government as the enemy. And it became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy as we cut taxes and lowered spending uh, or provided our government with less resources. Uh, government became just less uh, adept at what they were doing. Money kind of overran government or politics. And I think people lost faith in their institutions. They don't go to church as much uh, and they distrust institutions. And then they have these algorithms that will um, find profit in tearing down institutions or setting us on each other. So our discourse has become more coarse. We no longer trust the government. And uh, I think these institutions represent connective tissue. Uh, so when we don't engage in public service or we don't trust our government, it's sort of like, well, what is America then? Is it just a platform for businesses and for fast food? Like, what is it? And also, um, we haven't had what I call an existential threat, and we may have that with the Russians pouring into Ukraine. But the notion that we're, you know, w we see our allies as as adversaries now is just sort of strange. Uh, so I think it's a lack of connective tissue. In the fifties and sixties and seventies in the U.S., we had great legislation because most of our leaders had served in the same uniform. I would argue that Israel doesn't suffer from the same divisiveness as we do, or at least that's my impression, because I don't know as much about it, because you've all served in the same uniform. I think that's really powerful. And that is, I think Israelis see each other first as Israelis, not as conservative or as, as liberal. Uh, and here in the US, um, a third of each party sees the other party as their enemy, which is just sort of ridiculous when you think about it. And we get <clears throat> so caught up in arguments you know, right now, Republicans are very concerned that a trans swimmer represents a threat to us. And it's like, well, there's 190,000 people pouring over a border in Ukraine. Isn't that, isn't that a bigger threat? And people on the far left see, see you know, threats. That, so I think it's a lack of respect for our institutions. And I think there's a profit motive around setting us against one each other and finding enemies where we really aren't enemies. We might be competitors, but we're not enemies. On this point of connective tissue, I'm really struck by that. And I have wondered about it myself about the United States. There was a poll the other day that said there are among Republicans, more Republicans trust Vladimir Putin than trust Joe Biden. There was also, I just saw a photograph of a, a couple of Republicans at a Trump rally wearing a t-shirt saying, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And I'm putting those two things together with what you just said and wondering if it begins to make plausible what had previously seemed a slightly, you know, hyperbolic, hyperventilating scenario, which is that America could, it's plausible to imagine America coming apart, that actually, even without the old fashioned Civil War stuff, um, and we talked about that with David Remnick on this podcast a while back, but whether the lack of connective tissue is so worrying to you that you can imagine a situation where actually America doesn't hold together anymore. Yeah, it's really, and I don't, I, can't, I have trouble discerning how much of it is I'm getting older and just more pessimistic and depressed, or if these threats are as grave as they they, they really are. But it doesn't make it just dumbfounds me that 
that we would show this type of affection. And everything's become politicized. So vaccines all of a sudden became a left and right thing. If you're conservative, you you don't believe in science, you question the efficacy of vaccines. If you're a liberal, you think every conversation around societal issues should immediately be kind of a certain narrative or you they don't feel safe around you. There's no room for actual conversation or discussion or debate. The notion, I think that unfortunately for me, a lot of it, I think, well, how do we diagnose the problem before we can put in place some, some remedies? And for me in the U.S., it all comes back to one central thing, and that is for the first time in our nation's history, uh, Jonathan and Yonit, a 30-year-old man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at 30. That's the central compact in any society, that your kids will do better than you. And for the first time in American history, that compact has been broken. And then especially, it's especially severe among young men. And that is uh, now for every male graduate from college in the U.S., which is still kind of this on-ramp to a better life in the U.S., there's two female graduates. It's 60-40, female to male college attendees, but it's two to one because more men drop out and don't matriculate to graduation. Um, You're seeing relative to any other cohort, and we don't talk about it because no one feels sorry for them, young men are failing uh, dramatically. They're three times as likely to uh, overdose. They're four times as likely to kill themselves. They're nine times as likely to end up in prison. They're not graduating from college, as we referenced. And as a result, they're not attractive as mates. We also, on the left, don't like to admit that women have different criteria for mating than men. Women mate socioeconomically horizontally and up. Men mate horizontally and down socioeconomically. And so when men are failing economically, there's an entire population of young men who are shut out from relationships. And the most dangerous person in the world is a young, angry, and alone male. If you look at the most violent, unstable societies in the world, they have too many of this cohort. And we are producing more of them in the U.S. than we've ever produced before. And I think that they are very susceptible to messages of aggression, messages of fake, what I'll call masculinity. And they're angry at the system, and they want to blame people, and they look at an individual uh, like Trump – who is angry and says, it's not your fault. I mean, it's a very dangerous narrative that has come out, that that has been present in our darkest moments in history, where you have young directionless males that aren't attaching to work, they're not attaching to school, and they're not attaching to relationships, and they're failing. The percentage of wealth controlled by people under the age of 40 has gone from 19% of GDP in the U.S. to 9. So they're broke and alone and have no guideposts in the form of relationships, and they're looking for a culprit. And then we have these nationalist people who come along and respect macho and want to restore your sense of masculinity and see aggression, see violence, see invasion, see discrimination against certain groups. They see as that as somehow being more politically courageous. And it leads to a very dark place. And unfortunately, because we hate each other so much here in the U.S., that we refuse to even acknowledge that we're all Americans and start developing more camaraderie for each other. So I I worry about it a great deal. I I do reverse engineer all of it, almost all of it, income inequality and algorithms that are find a profit motive and making us angry at each other. But whenever we in history have gotten to these levels of income 
inequality. The, the good news is, is always self-corrects. The bad news is it corrects in one of three ways, war, famine, or revolution. And if you look at what's happened in the U.S., we have famine and pestilence and COVID are a form of, of famine. We are the wealthiest nation in the world. We have the greatest healthcare system. We control the supply chain of the vaccines. The vaccines were invented here. We have the greatest morbidity per capita of any wealthy nation. So we have famine. And I think we're having uh, a form of revolution. I think the social justice movements in the U.S. have been more violent and more uh, angry because there's this underlying incendiary of income inequality. And I think we're looking um, – we, we also don't trust our allies. But I, I see it as very, uh, very unsettling. And I'm not entirely sure – I see the prescription as an investment in younger people and investment in our institutions and reinstituting a collective – notion of what it means to be American uh, and re-engaging with our allies, but I, I see it as incredibly troubling. I've never seen anything like this. That, that does sound really worrying. I, I want to actually use your expertise and I think something uh, also around the, the area of, of brand strategy and to, to pull you into talking about Israel, if we can. You mentioned that Israelis have a certain camaraderie because they, most of them, do a military service. Now, I'm a a person from Tel Aviv sitting in, you know, the most of the, one of the most volatile regions in the world. How is it that this economy here is growing, that the high-tech sector uh, is bringing up so, money, so much money? On the other hand, we, of course, have uh, economic disparities. How do you explain all this, what is going on here in this country? Well, you're, I mean, Israel has, I mean, Israel's a huge success story, uh, right? No natural resources and a huge investment in education. There's been tremendous kind of spillover from the military. I, mm -hmm. I'm an investor and on the board of a company called OpenWeb, started by two Israeli intelligence officers. Um, and to a certain extent, the fact that you're surrounded by people who want to kill you, I mean, you have real enemies, creates a collective, a collective camaraderie. And at the end of the day, you know, when missiles start firing over the border, you don't see yourself as part of the conservative party. You see yourself as Israeli. Our country has not been attacked. We were attacked on 9-11, but other than some submarines off the Pacific coast in like 1942 and 9-11, you know, we have Mexico, harmless Mexico to the south and friendly Canada to the north. There really hasn't been an existential threat that unifies us as Americans. And just as on campus, uh, on campuses across America, people are very upset around very real injustices towards uh, uh, special interest groups, whether it's people of color or gay people. And so what I see on campus is they go hunting for fake racists. They go hunting for fake bigots because they're angry and they feel like they want to do something. So they wait until a hapless English professor says something inartful and they go after him. We have diversity and inclusion departments on universities and what are the most diverse and inclusive places in the world. So we've decided to go after each other rather than focusing on some of the very real problems that face, you know, that face us. And in the U.S., I feel as if we've decided to go after each other because the algorithms encourage it, because people are frustrated with income inequality, and we don't appear to have an existential threat that we can rally around. I mean, one of the, more, one of the few silver linings in this invasion of Ukraine is I think it's given NATO new purpose and a new sense of, of gravity. NATO was sort of suffering from what I'd call brain death, and that is they couldn't figure out if they were there to 
protect against extremists? Should they be should they be pushing back on China? And now it's pretty clear what NATO's for. And uh, it's brought all of us, all these allies have largely kept the peace since 1945 together to speak in a more meaningful way, I think, in a more serious way than, you know, maybe 9-11. I don't even know if that inspired as much cooperation. But my sense is we're, we're finally recognizing we are, we are allies. Israel has education. It has existential threat such that you see each other as brothers and sisters under the same flag. I mean, you have your own political divisiveness. But I just don't see the same nonsense coming out of Israel. And also, you've made a massive investment, I think, uh, that's been supported definitely by the government in technology. And you made these huge investments in software that have paid off hugely. Uh, so it feels like the perfect storm of good things for Israel. But again, a lot of it is because I, I have a family on a Moshev that seems happy. I'm involved in mm -hmm. Israeli tech companies, so I see the mm -hmm. best of it. I'm sure you have your own issues as well, but it strikes me that the the investment in technology, the investment in education, the uh, uh, strategic positioning around technology, a existential threats that unify people under a collective cooperative, where they they respect each other and have their differences, and then at the end of the day, go to sleep at as Israelis and wake up as Israelis. We wake up as Republicans or Democrats. I mean, where does that make any sense? So you just mentioned your fa family in Israel. <laughs> you don't come at this totally as an outsider. Just to be a little bit parochial for a minute, just tell us your own connections to some of this stuff because it's not completely abstract for you. Well, it, it's. <clears throat> I'm an atheist, but I grew up. Uh, my mother's Jewish. Uh, I have family that lives in Israel. My cousin was a tank commander. We're all very proud of him. And, you know, one of the greatest alliances or, you know, it's kind of like Israel and America share this sort of special bond. Um, and it, it, it seems to breach across both parties, which is a good thing. But, yeah, I grew up – I just grew up, uh, you know, and a lot of it was just my mom. Like, no matter what it is, we, we support Israel. <laughs> and, you know, I made that, that trip that every teenager makes to Israel uh, with friends. So – you know, for me, it's just a—it's more of a cultural, and, and it's part of my heritage. Even though uh, I'm a rabid atheist, um, I, I just believe at the end of the day, I'm—you know—I'm an American. But I think if shit gets real, the place that's going to land our planes and fight with us would be Israel. And I, I'm not sure that's true of the other parts of the region. So, I have sort of this—maybe this not very <laughs> thoughtful, but a kind of a reductionist feeling that that is an alliance that is pretty important for 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 us. And there were a few weeks in Hebrew school as well, right? We there just, you go. Uh, I got kicked out of Hebrew school for that trying to resell candy. That was my gangster move, Scott. I have to remind you of those couple of weeks <laughs> in Hebrew school. No, I was gonna. I was gonna ask something about education because you you obviously uh, make a lot of that. I think uh, Israelis might argue if there's enough of investment in in education. But you you know you talk about this a lot. You started a company that that provides access to higher business education, Section Four. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to ask as a parent. Mm -hmm. um, we're sending our kids to school. Does that mean we're preparing them from the, for the 21st century or just kind of subjecting them to some kind of unsuccessful babysitting apparatus? I think it's situational, and I'm not as familiar with the higher education system in Israel. In the U.S., higher ed, I would argue, is sort of mo morphed from this incredible upward lubricant. Uh, you know, the reason I'm 
here talking to you is through the generosity of taxpayers and something called the University of California, which let me get an amazing education, undergraduate and graduate degrees for a total tuition of all seven years of $7,000. And also even more important than the economic access was just access. When I applied to UCLA in 1982, the acceptance rate was 76%. And I had to apply twice to get in, but I got in. Uh, the acceptance rate now is 12%, meaning that mm -hmm. the sons of single mothers that aren't remarkable, and there's always a Hallmark Channel or fictional story about the remarkable kid from the inner city who's raised by a single mother and score is a genius on math. I can prove to every one of us that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. It's the top 1% that are going to college, and it's the top 1% that need college the least. The kids who need higher education are the unremarkables. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we've become obsessed with this sort of hermesification of higher education. And that is we take our best universities and there's become a non-economic and economic incentive to reduce admissions rates such that the head of the admissions department where I work at NYU stands up and says, we rejected 90% of our un of our applicants, and we all stand up and clap as if, the, as if that's a good thing. And that, for me, is tantamount to the head of a homeless shelter bragging that he or she turned away 9 and 10 people last night. That's not why we're here. We're public servants. We're not fucking Chanel. So <laughs> I, I, in the U.S., we have turned higher ed from this incredibly egalitarian lubricant of upward mobility into the enforcer of this emerging caste system. And there are two cohorts that get into sort of the great elite universities. And elite universities in the U.S. are the best in the world. We're, we're great at making weapons, software, superhero films, and we're great at education, or at least higher education. And the two cohorts that are disproportionately populating our best universities are first and foremost the children of rich kids. You're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if you come from a 1% income earning household, top 1%. There's the industrial testing complex, all sorts of resources. And then we gloss over that uncomfortable fact by letting in what I call the freakishly remarkable. And the reality is most of us don't peak at 17. I mean, if you have a patent, our captain of the football team, and also uh, the backup singer in an off-Broadway show and, you know, have built wells in Africa by the time you're 17, more power to you. But the majority of kids aren't like that. And in the U.S., it's become a bit of the Hunger Games where if you win, you lead a remarkable life. But everybody else kind of dies sort of a slow, hideous death. And I would argue higher ed is supposed to be is about the unremarkables. The children of rich people end up with pretty – by the time they're out of high school, they have pretty good educations. They have contacts. They have skills. They need college the least. And those are the ones that are getting into the elite universities. So I don't know if the same thing is true in Israel. But here uh, we have transferred uh, $1.5 trillion in wealth from middle-class households to universities because there's sort of this trope in America where if you don't send your kids to college, you failed as a parent. And because the elite universities are so selective now and take so much pride in that, good kids that aren't amazing or don't have rich parents – get arbitraged down to mediocre schools. And what you have in America is the majority of kids end up paying a Mercedes price for a Hyundai product. And they come out of school with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for what is a mediocre degree. Whereas where it used to be in the 80s, you get a great degree from a place like UCLA for a small amount of money. So I think we need to go mm -hmm. back to the future and, and kind of fall back in love with what I refer to as the unremarkables. It's so interesting hearing the, the idea of 
going backward because even radical people now find themselves often having to do that of invoking the past rather than some new progressive idealized future but i want to go I, there may be a common link here but i want to go back to the thing you've mentioned two or three times in our conversation as a as a culprit namely algorithms and what is the way to rein those in and you think about the big straight strains of political thought over the last several centuries they've been about sort of taming over mighty tyrants kings monarchs that's how your country was founded people sort of got their heads around how you do that you knew you knew, you drew up a brilliant document the american constitution showing us how to do that now the human race is confronted by something very different and you've put your finger on it in your work uh, talking about algorithms do we need to come up with a fix on on a similarly grand scale in other words something that stands alongside the american constitution and you know magna carta to rein in and tame the algorithms that seem to control so much of our lives. Yeah, so 2010, we spent 3% of our life on phones. Now we spend 34% of our waking hours on phones. And the content we see is served up by algorithms. And these algorithms have a profit motive. They're not, the algorithms in and among themselves aren't inherently benign or evil. They're programmed by people who are programmed for profit maximization. And we're a tribal species, and we're drawn to violence and disagreement. And so the algorithms recognize this, and they think if we can encourage people to start arguing, if we promote yeah. content that's incendiary, you know. So the I want to start off by saying the dissenter's voice is really important. It's really important that we have a conversation around, you know, whether or not vaccines alter your DNA. But when you say that, the algorithm goes, "Oh, this really upsets people." And it causes a lot of heated conversation. So let's promote that those statements around white supremacy or hate speech or anti-vax because that content inspires more enragement. And the enragement equals engagement, which equals more Nissan ads. And so what you find is some of this content, which is kind of dangerous and just blatantly false, gets more oxygen than it would on its own. And I think that's the first mistake is people assume that any discussion around whether these algorithms are bad is basically a decision around censorship. It's not censorship. If I go on my podcast and I say that your 15-year-old is running the risk of an enlarged heart if you give him a vaccine, I have an onus as a responsible person with a decent reach to fact check that and find that there's only been seven cases of that reported in all of Florida across the hundreds of thousands of young men who've received a vaccine. But that content inspires a very, very visceral reaction, and the algorithms love that, so they start elevating the content and giving it more oxygen and sunlight than would get on its own. So one, I think we need to remove some of the legal protections that these organizations have from some of the damage they do, and that is if this podcast, if we could reverse engineer this podcast to teen depression and eating disorders, uh, this podcast would be legally liable and we would probably start being more thoughtful around the type of content we put out. Right now, Facebook suggests extreme dieting sites to a 15-year-old girl who's 5'10", 100 pounds. Two-thirds of, ex of extremist sites on YouTube that young men engage in are suggested to them by algorithms. And they have no real profit incentive to rein in that content. As a matter of fact, they have a profit incentive to keep it going because of Section 230. So one, I think it's regulation. I do think there's a capitalist solution, and that is just competition. Uh, because if 
Google and Facebook had six or eight competitors. P&G doesn't like what's going on with, with teen depression. They see the problems, but they don't have any choice. I'll spend two or $3 million this year on Facebook. It makes me sick to my stomach. But if you want to build an online education company, you kind of have a choice. The choice is do you spend money on Google or do you spend money on Facebook? It's just if you want to, if you want to acquire consumers online, you have to spend money online. And there's three companies that get 90 cents on the digital dollar between Google, Facebook, and Amazon. So I think it's regulation. I think it's um, uh, uh, competition, increased competition. I would break these companies up. We have a proud legacy of antitrust in the U.S. where we right. go in and break companies up. And also, I don't think any of this really moves the needle until someone gets sent to prison. Um, I don't – you know, in the U.S., I don't know if you heard of the Varsity Blues scandal. We were talking about higher ed. But basically, there was this system where this consultant was saying to wealthy parents, give me $500,000 – I'll give it to the Stanford sailing coach. He will submit their application and say that they're a sailor, and they will get in as a student athlete. Hmm. And the thing is, that happens every day, and these people uh, did it, and some of them went to jail. Aunt Becky, who or Lori Laughlin from a TV series here, went to jail. Mm -hmm. And if somebody calls anyone now and says, I can get your kid in for $500,000 under uh, posing as an athlete, they're hanging up the phone because they saw Aunt Becky from Full House do a perp walk. Right now, what's effectively happened with big tech is they have this parking meter in front of their house that costs $100 an hour to, impl to implement these moderation tools are expensive, and the, but the parking ticket is, costs 25 cents. So their motivation is to break the law and to continue to break the law because there's no real algebra of deterrence. Any fine we come up with is a fraction of their cash flow. Uh, so everyone was just just blown away by the $5 billion fine we levied on Facebook for violating our privacy and Cambridge Analytica. That's 11 weeks of profit, and it took us three years to get that through. So, so it, competition, um, regulation, and also I do think uh, uh, some of these – some of this delay and obfuscation around uh, covering up information as it relates to teen depression should be should have criminal uh, cr uh, criminal action filed against them. Uh, I have to ask you uh, before we let you go about the podcast medium, which you have been incredibly successful uh, in, and we uh, also interviewed your co-host uh, Kara Swisher, and we asked her what her secret for a pod distance relationship was with you and. Uh, she said patience. Patience. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder what you would say after hearing that she said patience. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan. Of, uh, so, you know, I, I worked my ass off for 30 years so I could be an overnight success, courtesy of Kara Swisher. <laughs> so uh, I love working with Kara. The, the nice thing about, and we were going back to polarization, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a crude and profane person. I make all sorts of inappropriate jokes um, and I think the reason that – and one of the things I believe about um, it, progress around embracing each other, people of color, people of different sexual orientations, people from different backgrounds, is I think teasing is affection. I think we'll know when we've made progress, when we can make light of our differences. And one of the things I really enjoy with Kara is she makes fun of, you know, kind of what a jarhead fraternity boy I am. and. <laughs> I, you know, I make fun of her around how woke she is. And we talk about each other's sexual orientation very openly and we rib each other. And I think that's progress. And also when I say something inappropriate or profane, there's a 
there's a quietness and a silence. And then when she laughs, it kind of gives everyone else permission to laugh. Because I think all of us <laughs> deep down find some of this stuff kind of funny. Uh, so what I really like about Kara is that she gives me cloud cover to be a little bit inappropriate. <laughs> and people recognize that on the important stuff, there's a lot of people out there who are empathetic, good people, want the best for people, but still see humor, still can be crude or profane. It can be vulgar, and that's okay. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. Uh, so I absolutely love the partnership. It's, uh, it feels like you guys have a good rapport and a good partnership. The other thing that's really interesting about the medium is the medium really is the message. If mm-hmm. if someone comes up to me and 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 gives me uh, like a like a you know they recognize me, I know they've seen me on TV. If somebody writes me a really long, thoughtful email, it means they've read one of my posts. The written word is really powerful when it resonates with people. If someone comes up to me and just starts talking to me as if they know me, <laughs> it means right. they listen Podcast. to the pod. Because there's something yeah. about being in someone's ears and them getting used to their voice. They begin to believe that you're speaking to them and that you have an informal relationship. And I don't know if this happens to the two of you, but there's something very intimate and familial about the podcast medium. And that's very rewarding because people come up and are they it's like your friendship goes starts at letter D. They just start talking to you as if they know you yep. and you know them. And then they have mm-hmm. to say, Oh wait, it's been one way. Yeah, I know you, but you don't know me. But I, I find the medium fascinating. Um, I'm much more handsome on podcast. I have a very good looking voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but at TV, it starts to all fall apart. But I've loved it, and I've loved working with Kara. I think um, you'll need uh, you're going to give me cloud cover for my profanity from there. You go. Oh, completely! You're so vulgar. There you go. So, you're so vulgar. vulgar. So uh, crude. Yeah, I, ch- I chose um, an Englishman. I'm not sure vulgar is exactly the operative I, word. <laughs> I was um, just when you said that, Scott. I was just thinking of how I was inappropriately over friendly to someone whose podcast I listen to all the time, and I realized I am that guy who comes up to you in the airport. <laughs> uh, I listen to a, a, a football soccer podcast. And I'm too way too friendly to the host of it when I've met him a couple of times for exactly the reason you said, which is they're in your ear, you feel they're your friend. So you, you've nailed it. It's so rewarding, so, though. People, I, I was out with my kids. Uh, we went to Chick-fil-A, and uh, someone came up to me and started talking to me. It was such a nice moment for me. My kids still don't know what I do. And, <laughs> and people come up to you all the time and start talking to you. And you know, people say, how does it feel? And I'm like, it feels wonderful. It's really validating, and people are friendly, and people are nice. So I don't. I'm sure it happens to the two of you too. But it feels great. And what they say, which I find hard to believe, is that for every person that comes up to you and says hello, there's a hundred people who recognize you. And it's just yeah. funny to think that you have. You walk into a mall, and there's a hundred people that you sort of have a relationship with. It's a nice feeling, uh, and it also creates a level of responsibility. As my Audience has grown, and I, I, I don't know if you guys feel this way. I feel more of an onus to fact check my data and be a little bit more thoughtful. Like yesterday when we did the podcast, I said, let's not talk about Ukraine. I just don't feel as if I understand it well enough to be thoughtful about it. And people, people listen to us. Uh, but I find, the, I find the kind of the new friends you acquire on this medium, I think it's wonderful. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for being with us on Unholy. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for talking to us today. Thanks for your good work. So that was uh, 
Truly fascinating, I think. There are so many things to say about that conversation. Uh, Starting with his voice, by the way. He's not wrong about that great voice. Good looking (laughs) voice. My (laughs) word. Amazing voice. (laughs) Are you a little bit jealous? Is this Jonathan Friedland being a little bit jealous? Not with my COVID voice. I'm quite proud of my COVID voice. I could do voiceovers with this. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, 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 not having problems. Paging on that score Disney, today. Pa- paging Disney animators, right? They like to make the. Like, I could like be the English, English villain. Men. Exactly, they like to do that, don't they? Kill parents off at the beginning of the film and have English <laughs> villains. That's what they do very well. Uh, what I was thinking when he was talking about like Israeli education uh, and and the way in which our you know our society is. He's right about the fact that there's, I think, still more keeping us together in Israel than is tearing us apart. But I mean, in Israel, it's so clear that the question that usually is is so prominent in the United States, where did you go to school, doesn't really exist. What happens in this country is usually, where did you do your military service? And if it's a combat unit and increasingly military intelligence, you have the golden ticket into politics and into business. That, of course, is a problem when it comes to women and when it comes to minorities, even there are more and more uh, minorities, more and more women in combat units. But still, it does exclude certain groups. Um, and of course, I have to comment on uh, their uh, his advice on uh, what was that pod distance relationship? Yeah, I like that. To- <laughs> what was the secret ingredient? I think they both, at the end of the day, both Karen and Scott say the same thing, which is being patient to Scott's uh, vulgarities, <laughs> which is true. Uh, but I think See, I don't feel we have said, that problem. Do you? Do you feel I, we I have that did, problem? Did, did, I don't think so. But I think what he said, which was really interesting, is the fact that you kind of need to laugh, right? And you need to realize that things come out of affection. They're not, not everything you say is offensive, um, when I mean you, I don't mean you, of course, because you don't say anything <laughs> offensive. But you know, I like that. But that was my those is my takeaways. What would you What would you say? Is your no, I think it was true about the and well, sort of patience. But that implied that they kind of try each other's patience. Well, I'm not sure we're quite like that with each other. Oh, give us but I give think, us time. But give it's us time, true. Give Jonathan. it time. And I thought he was really interesting on, you know, toxic masculinity, and yeah. and and it it definitely is a big part of this and. I mean, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about all those populist leaders, Bolsonaro and Trump um, and Duterte, and and actually it really is the common, Putin, the common link is a very particular kind of very warped machismo uh, in all their cases. I just think he's really perceptive on all those things, and it was a really, uh, you know, fascinating, wide-ranging conversation. He's one of those people who's very smart and can range across the whole kind of savannah. And, uh, yeah, no, it was... Great to have him on. We have some awards to hand out. I think um, you are making claim, making a little habit, one might even say, of making a claim for the Mensch honours. So who, who is in your, who is in your sites? Would you say that I'm using my Israeli chutzpah to hog the Mensch awards? Is that what you're trying to say? Hog like again a- is a verb that sits uneasily with me because of the ancient dietary laws of our people. But yes, why not? Um, okay, so I will want I, I want to respond in my mental words this week. I would want to respond to a good friend of our pod, uh, Raymond Simonson, who is also, I believe, the director of the JW3 uh, in London. And I'm not saying that that title is more important than the title friend of the pod. But he is also a friend of the pod. And he said, uh, suggested on Twitter this week that we both create a special mention of the decade award and give it to Zelensky. Now, I sadly, as the head of the Tel Aviv uh, branch of the Unholy franchise. I don't have that authority and jurisdiction to give a Mensch Award of the Decade. Yeah, no, I said to Raymond, we would have to summon the whole committee, which I think think meets either in Oslo or Stockholm. (laughs) 
and it would require no, an extraordinary a, general meeting. It's, so. a, it's a secret. It's a secret place. We don't we don't uh, disclose it. Yes, but um, a decade is a long time, Raymond. Things can happen in a decade. Just think of the two decades it took from Rudy Giuliani to shift from hero of 9-11 to Four Seasons Total Landscaping, right? So a decade <laughs> is a long time. We don't want to give that extended, you know, um, a title, but we will, uh, on the f- first time in the history of this program, give him the Mensch Award second week running uh, to Zelensky. Who else? I mean, let's be honest, this badass Jew, right, who is uh, for his bravery and his courage, and uh, and I think it's well-deserved. What do you think? I, I- yeah, I th- I think um, Raymond makes a very strong point, and we could just be giving it to him week after week after week. And in a way, you know, please God that we do that um, because we want him to carry on thriving and doing this amazing stuff. Um, he is obviously a sort of modern day hero. Uh, he the video came out of him not only competing in the Ukrainian edition of Dancing with the Stars or Strictly Come Dancing, uh, which showed he was a very good mover, but also it emerged that he voiced Paddington Bear in the Ukrainian version of the movie. And somebody tweeted, you know, could he do anything more to make Middle Britain fall in love with him than being Paddington and dancing on Strictly? Or Dancing with the Stars. So he is obviously a hero. Um, in a normal week, I would want to make an honourable mention uh, of Israel's Supreme Court, uh, which made a decision uh, on the Sheikh Sharah case about the Palestinian families there who had been slated for eviction from their homes from that East Jerusalem neighbourhood. Uh, and the court held that they basically can stay until a final decision has been made. Um, you know, it's only a sort of interim kind of holding ruling, uh, but it didn't mean the court had partially accepted the Palestinian residents' appeal, and it means for now they can keep living where they are. The reason why I, I think that's important, I mean, one of their lawyers said it's an incredible legal victory. You just, all you have to do is imagine the consequences if it had gone the other way. And Eve, you know, with everything else going on, uh, the idea of that kind of injustice and then the the response that would have been on the ground, who knows, with riots and, and maybe much, much worse. We know from previous and fairly recent experience what a powder cake Jerusalem is. So uh, well done to the Supreme Court for, for that decision, partial, incomplete or whatever as it may be. Um, in terms of chutzpah, uh, I thought, uh, and I say this not only as an Arsenal fan, Although I am a Arsenal fan, as you know. But Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea, has put up his football club, um, saying, you know, doing it with a very heavy heart and done it with great speed. And he's doing it because he fears that he's going to be, and Chelsea will be, the target of sanctions. Uh, The leader of the opposition in Britain, uh, uh, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, made his first question at Prime Minister's Questions this week, when are you going to sanction Roman Abramovich? He is a close associate of the Russian leader. He is a huge oligarch with a massive fortune and one of the most visible uh, oligarchs in London. We're owning, you know, one of London's big football clubs, clearly not the most important or storied <laughs> football club in London, uh, but the owner of it. A and very objective view of the story, yes. Big houses, big residences. And look, it's chutzpah of him to sort of think, right, let me offload it so I can... Pock trouser the money. He wants three billion pounds for it. 
but also in a way chutzpah of the British government. To, and it's done this with a lot of them. It's given a lot of the oligarchs a lot of notice, effectively saying, you know, quick, sell your stuff before we put sanctions on you rather than imposing it immediately. So uh, chutzpah awards are plenty in the direction of the oligarchs, I think. For sure. We are uh, very close to winding down our program this week, Jonathan. We should, but um, first, because I know we often do thank yous at this point, I have to do, do a thank you from me to you because listeners last week heard our exchange about the etiquette of opening birthday presents the upshot was i believed you don't open a birthday present till it's your actual birthday so i didn't open the lovely parcel that came from one yonit levy to me until friday the day of my birthday and there i'm just looking at it right now within all the wrapping and it'd been meticulously wrapped i should mention that was a (laughs) framed edition of the front page of the Haaretz newspaper for February the 24th, 1967. Now, it turns out, and this is a sort of amazing thing here, but, <laughs> well, maybe you should tell the story of that. But anyway, it's a beautiful thing, and it's amazing because the splash, the lead story of the paper is about the then Soviet Union engaged in a border dispute. And we have Sovietim, and we have Tsvon Vietnam, and all of that... It is Some a more fantastic document, but mainly it's a beautiful gift and it's going to go straight on the wall of this room and it was your birthday gift to me. The more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. That is what that headline reads, uh, basically. Um, yes, the idea was actually to get you a um, first page of uh, Howard's newspaper from the day you were born and then I discovered that the day you were born was a Saturday. Very, uh, not that really not considerate on your part. Um but uh, yeah, so I got you the day before and the day after, which you could choose whatever you want to put on, uh, of course. And just saying, I mean, I love that you love the gift. I'm just saying that this year the universe gave you for your birthday COVID. So anything that I would have sent would probably be, I mean, if, if I sent scrap metal and wrote thinking of you, that would be better than what the universe got you this year. But I'm very glad, very glad that you like it. And no pressure, no competition. By that, I mean a lot of pressure and a lot of competition. I have no you idea. You have five how, months. You have, have five no months. I have no idea how I'm going to match that. And don't think I haven't thought about it because I have. No, and in t- incredibly, until then, I actually did not know that I was born on a Saturday because the family story I'd always been told was that it was Erev Shabbat, it was Friday night when my mother went into labour. You know, the candles were lit and she was rushed uh, to to the hospital and into labour. And therefore, I'd always assumed I was born on a Friday night. But no, it was obviously the early hours of a Saturday morning. Saturday, no Hebrew papers are published, no Israeli papers are published. Therefore, uh, we have the other one there. And look at it, I love it already. Um, It's framed under glass. It's done so, I mean, in, in on both sides. It's very, very cleverly done and beautiful uh, and means I cannot even hope to match it come July. But I don't worry, the bronze, I'm already... bronze statue, the bronze statue of me in the entrance of the Friedland clan house. That could be uh, one or Chelsea Football Club is the other one. I just need two or three billion dollars. We can start crowdfunding on the podcast for that. Um but we should say, if you have enjoyed this, please do rate or review or give us lots of stars. And um, we have some thank yous that are not me to you. Indeed. And I will, and I will also remind our listeners of uh, our email box, which is getting more mail for Jonathan than for me, I'm just saying. Um, and that is unholy at keshet, K-E-S-H-E-T hyphen tv.com and thank you to Rom Atik, Lior Friedman, Irad Eshel and of course Omer Primat and Jonathan feel better we will meet you COVID free I hope next week I hope so too see you then Yoni bye